You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. This is episode one of Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange, Sarah Raven and Arthur Parkinson's podcast about exactly that, growing, cooking, eating and arranging. And I'm sat by the fire in East Sussex at Perch Hill looking out. It's a beautiful day today. We've had horrendous weather recently. And so I have to say seeing the sun is quite livening and brightening. But I'm not with Arthur today, of course, because of coronavirus. He's actually over in Gloucestershire. Uh, but we are communicating over the internet. And today, at the end of winter, we're going to cover winter salad and hellebores. So Sarah, as you know, I'm in a place that's quite nice in the English countryside known as the Cotswolds. And um, I have to say, I've been really missing, you'll be surprised to hear, your vegetable slope because... Every few days we have a a trip out and the trips are quite limited uh, due to the virus, but we tend to go to quite posh farm shops. And um, to be honest, I've been taking quite a bit of notice of what varieties of in-season veg are being sold and also the prices. I've been absolutely disgusted at yesterday almost paying £6 for a bag of leaves that I'm used to seeing you emerge with as you come through the kitchen at this time of year in a lovely colander freshly picked from the garden often at seven o'clock at night when we're about to have a glass of wine <laughs> so even I am considering somehow growing my own lettuce leaves and I imagine that you've got plenty to pick at Perch Hill uh, I hope that's the case that is the case and I'm very glad to hear that because you are not famed for liking your food Arthur but <laughs> I think you do know good food from bad food. I'm not saying yes. that Gloucestershire farm shop salad is bad food at no, all. No, neither am I. I've just not got <laughs> unlimited budget to be buying it every day. So there are, um, you're absolutely right, so many different salad leaves and lettuces that you can grow. And I think people just don't realise how hardy a lot of these plants are. I mean, there's one that we grow lots of here in various different forms, actually, called Mitsuna. And it's from the highlands in Japan, and it's under snow there as a wild plant. And so here we've had it under three inches of snow in Beast from the East. I remember going out there and just scraping the snow aside and being able to pick from it. So Mitsuna is a sort of really classic example, but actually something like Salad Rocket is incredibly hardy and lots of the mustards. And you'll like the mustards too because they're so elegant and they come in beautiful colours with sort of crimson markings and veins. Like there's one called a Red Frills mustard that tastes of new potatoes. But they, again, I've, I've scraped aside the snow and picked some of those as well. And they really can take down to minus five, minus seven in terms of a frost. Yeah, I remember seeing red frills um, one spring. You got it in the Oast Garden, I think, in your long tom pots and the tulips were were coming up. But without the red frills, the, the Oast Garden Avenue would have looked quite, you know, not boring, but quite dull. And I remember thinking, wow, it's like a William Morris sort of tapestry leaf. So I, I do agree with you yeah. on the looks. But how would those plants react to you going out and, and cutting them for the kitchen? Surely you'd be ruining the display. Well, that's a really good question. And luckily that isn't the case because the thing is that they're cut and come again. So 
What we tend to find here from our trialing and experiments is that if we do a system of what's called picking round, which is literally not with scissors, not with a knife, but using your fingers, just um, breaking off leaves about an inch above ground level, leaving always the heart of the plant intact. So you just remove the outer leaves of one plant, move on to the next plant, move on to the next and so on. What happens is that the heart of the plant then self-replenishes and those will gradually fill out from the heart to give you the outer leaves again so they're cut and come again. And they still behave like that even in January and February. That's what's so amazing. And do you tend to give these these little salad leaves a lot of space when they're seedlings? Because I remember seeing in the supermarkets when I last went to a supermarket, they'd started doing quite trendy little cardboard boxes, clusters cut and come again. But the seedlings look very crammed in and I remember thinking well they're not going to last would you prick them out or would you sow just very finely what would you how would you grow them from seed so uh, th- those little boxes that you get you sometimes get basil like that too don't you and mm. they're, they're sort of called microgreens and they're very chefy and they're very smart and they're quite chic but actually horticulturally I think they're a bit of a disaster a bit of a no-no because you can imagine that poor little plant it's got its brother within half a centimetre of it. And they're all competing for the same oxygen, water, light. And so what happens when an annual is competing closely with a neighbour for its life juices, effectively, it runs up to flower, sets seeds and dies. Mm. So whereas one of those cardboard boxes will give you one pick or two if you're lucky, if you space them six inches apart so they've got more room for all their physiological processes, Uh, what happens is that they will last not for two picks, but 20 picks. And that is what Mm. just amazes me, is there are certain lettuce varieties. um, I've got a terrible French accent, so I apologise for this. The Merveille de Cap Saison. (laughs) You've got an even worse French accent. I can't speak (laughs) French at all, for the record. (laughs) So we'll stick stick with your your attempts. (laughs) It's called The Marvel of Four Seasons, and we sow and grow that all through the year here. So I'd often pick a base of that in January and February, and then I would pick something with a very sort of spicy, strong flavour, like one of the Rockets or one of the Mustards or one of the Mitsunas. And then perhaps I would move on to one of the hardy salad herbs. And so, again, it's incredible here. I mean, I've picked flat-leaf parsley, like Giant of Napoli, from snow. So literally just after a really hard, you know, proper snow. Actually, I think we might be getting snow this weekend, so that'll be exciting. Um, so parsley or coriander is another one that really takes the cold. And that gives you the most lovely, lovely salad. It's not boring. It's not like a little gem that you've bought in the supermarket, chopped up and put a bit of oil on top. Every single mouthful tastes different. And that's what's exciting. Yeah. And I think that's the nice thing about growing all these varieties yourself. The the supermarkets really have like everything else, vegetable and fruit rice. They have almost raped out all the beautiful varieties that have got taste and and a bit of life to them. I think lettuce has become such a, just something that's ignored, isn't it? In diet, it's just there for the sake of being there. Whereas all these leaves, I'm looking at our catalogue now, and you are totally right. I can can imagine them tasting beautiful. And indeed, I've been lucky enough to taste them. But if I was just pot gardening at home, what time of year would I be sowing these things, thinking about the fact that they would be plants that would be on top of my my bulb lasagnas? Would I be able to sow them as late as 
as the end of November when I've planted the tulips or is that is that too late? Well, what I always say with the salad leaves is that you can actually do them pretty much any time of year, but you've got mm. to pick the right variety. So if you're going okay. to do them in a bulb lasagna like we have in the long toms that you were describing with mm. the tulips underneath coming up through the salad leaves, I would have sewn those salad leaves into a gutter pipe in fact, in the greenhouse, but it could just be under a mini plastic cloche or whatever. Yeah. But I would sow the seed into a length of guttering, spacing the seed really carefully at a good inch and a half apart. That way they can grow on, well, they can germinate and then grow on to a decent mini little seedling to then just push out one plant by one plant. So you can put your hand between plant one and plant two, push out plant one. And then go to the, you know, the front of the gutter pipe again, push out plant two. And so you can just plug out, let's say, six or seven of your different salad leaves over the top of your tulips after they've been planted in November. So as long as you sow in October, but plant out in November, you've then got something to pick all the way through the winter. And the tulips then come up through them and the foliage of the tulips will drown out the salad leaves. But it doesn't matter because you've sown again by then. Yeah. And I think it's about just having that structure in the garden, isn't it, when the bulbs are totally asleep. I'm looking out now at pots that have only got bulbs in. And I have to say they're boring me to death because there's just no life. I'm just looking at expanses of of pools of black compost. So um, you've won me over with the salad leaves. I'm going to be doing that this this autumn, I promise you. But you can do it now too, Arthur. It's oh, not I can just do it for... now too. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> well, I've not so, got a greenhouse though. So could I sow these things on the windowsill or are they just going to become leggy and collapsing? Yeah, no. So I would go to a builder's merchant, get yourself a length of perhaps a metre of guttering. Mm. So not the pipe, you know, that runs down from the top. No, of, the, the half moon. The half moon, exactly. Yeah. And you can actually get them in two metre lengths and cut them with a hacksaw into whatever size fits on your kitchen window ledge or whatever. Mm. Sow your seeds well spaced into that. And then in a month, again, just scoot them out into over the top of your troughs or your pots and they'll be happy as Larry and you'll you won't have to go to swanky Gloucestershire farm shops you'll be picking from just outside your door and also the nicest thing about homegrown veggies I'm discovering is there's no packaging we had an Ocado delivery yesterday and it broke my heart the amount of plastic so um you are totally right in in trying to grow as much of this stuff as as possible it's not just about flowers it is about um taste and trying to reduce and consume better i think i think yeah no road miles um, and I, I really wherever you live like my two daughters live in the city now and uh they're the the salads and the herbs are the things that even in a window box or a pot on your doorstep you genuinely can grow your own food really easily and and this is exactly the time of year to be starting because it you'll really get hooked and things don't need to be watered because the heavens are watering <laughs> And yeah. so it's pretty low maintenance and, and really effective. So one thing I am really missing, Sarah, is um, your famous salads, huge, beautiful bowls of salad that you produce quite magically often on occasion uh, within minutes because, of course, everything can be picked and often it doesn't even need to be washed at Perch Hill because it's all beautifully grown organically. But what are your top tips for doing one of these beautiful, quick, gorgeous-looking salads? I do love a salad. I'm afraid I am a bit of a rabbit. My daughter's boyfriend always teases me that um, he cooks a delicious meal and I say, are we having salad, Liam? <laughs> because <laughs> I do miss a salad and have one at least once or sometimes twice a day. But um, the beauty is I can just go out and, and pick them. 
But in my head, I have this kind of recipe, which is incredibly fluid. But it's basically that I'm looking for something for crunch. And that's normally lettuce. And at this time of year, uh, it's Marvel of Four Seasons. Or there's another one that we grow a lot of here called Black Seeded Simpson. And those will give us crunch, almost like a sort of Caesar salad crunch, you know, that kind of thing. So that is the background and the bulk of the bowl. And then I'm always looking for something with really, really strong flavor. And so that's a rocket or a mustard or a Mitsuna. And I might pick all three of those, actually, if, mm. if I've got a big bowl that I'm doing. And then the third will be a herb. And the fourth will be an edible flower because I always like my bowls to look lovely, too. But when I'm picking, particularly if it's for, let's say, six or eight people, or I'm picking for several days. So I might only twice a week pick a good colander of salad, but I will always pick with rubber bands on my wrists. And particularly with the herbs, I'll pick the stems with my hands, as I say, not with scissors, and then I'll collect them with an elastic band and plop them into the bottom of the colander. And then I'll move on and pick perhaps some sorrel, for instance, which is also up now. Or I might even pick um, some early dill that we've got in the greenhouse. But each little bunch I'll, I'll make into a bunch and then plop it into the bottom of the colander. And then when I come in, I literally just turn the whole colander upside down into a sink of cold water and leave them there for two hours. And what I think is that is like conditioning cut flowers. It's it's like the searing technique that you and I are going to talk about, about hellebores. Um, mm. But with lettuce, what it does is it plumps up every single cell. And so they've got maximum amount of water. So then when you dress them, they're still really perky and they don't wilt so quickly. And then I'll take them out after two hours, put them into a lettuce wizard or a clean tea towel, dry them off. And then I'll use what I want for that bowl but then I'll put them in a, a big Tupperware box or a big bag and put them in the fridge, sealed in the fridge. And I'll be able to go on using those fresh as a daisy for three or four days. Gosh, so there's none of that horrible plastic bag mushy, oh my God, can't eat any of this because it almost looks like baby puke by doing all that lovely stuff. There's none of that. You know, you hear fairy stories, don't you, possibly about what the supermarkets do to all these salad leaves in bags. That sounds yeah. far more organic and, and good for you. Yeah. Well, it's just, I mean, it is the one thing that wherever I was, my always sort of joke to myself is rather than being on a desert island, if I was sent to prison and I had to feed my <laughs> wingmates something that I only was allowed to have three or four packets of seeds, but I had to feed them something every day, it would definitely be one of these really nutritious, delicious, beautiful, elegant bowls of salad. I'm now wondering if that's what Martha Stewart did when she was sent to prison. I might write her and ask. <laughs> and then all you need on the top is a really lovely extra virgin olive oil and some salt and perhaps a squeeze of lemon. But I actually find I, I tend to get my oil from Crete where it's actually, it's got sort of quite a fruity flavour in a way. And I actually find I, I don't even need the vinegar or the lemon juice, just really nice flaky salt and olive oil. And that is a cracking bowl of salad. It is beautiful, that olive oil, I have to say. I remember it arriving in the shop and me looking quite puzzled at you, but it is um, a beautiful thing from Crete. Um, and it's from the oldest olive trees, isn't it? Or something like that that makes yeah. it really yeah. beautiful. High in the mountains. Mm. Yeah. 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 
But anyway, off food and onto flowers now, Arthur, because you've, done, you've been very nice to me um, <laughs> to, to talk about food for that long. So um, we were going to talk about hellebores as the ornamental of, of this podcast. So tell me which are your favourite hellebores and why, really? Well, two that you you put me on to, actually, that I ordered back in, I think, October. And I'm so glad I did because they're both by the door, Merlin and Maestro, which I know are quite newly bred ones to flower that little bit earlier and I have to say they're the most wonderful thing to see every morning they're really chirpy and very floriferous there's more buds coming up I haven't picked any yet because it's so warm in the house and I know that they won't last as long as they would do outside yeah but um it's wonderful to have that glamour at this time of year before anything because it's quite thin on the ground with with flowers really in terms of you know proper ballsy flowers so I'm really grateful to to have a few around the place and the good thing about hellebores too, of course, is that they are very happy in dappled shade. Mm. And so, you know, as you say, often right by the door to a house, it's quite a shady place. And that's exactly where I've got them here, just right either side of, of our back door. I've got a drift of both Merlin, Merlin and Maestro. And I've also got the one called the Christmas Rose, which is Helleborus niger. And that one is called the Christmas Rose because it's meant to flower at Christmas. Well, in my experience, it tends not to here quite, but that is already in flower now, and that's pure white. And I've just got one growing here called Potter's Wheel, which is particularly big. And I know you're very keen on glamour on flat in flowers. Well, so am I actually. But Potter's Wheel is certainly one to really look out for, I think. And I've seen lately the garden centres seem to be selling ones that are almost aimed at Christmas table markets. Frightfully expensive, I have to say. I did buy one as a present because I'd rather buy a plant than a bunch of flowers at Christmas for people. But it did cost me, you know, quite a bit of money. And I have to say, somehow it has coped with with indoor heat quite well. It's looking a bit worse for wear by now, but it did look beautiful for a fortnight inside. Is that a new element of hellebore breeding that they've really been working at? Yes, I think they've used some of our native hellebore genetics, Helleborus foetidus, which um, has those hanging green bells, a bit less glamorous because they do hang down rather than hold their heads up. And the one we've been trialing here is called Winter Bells. And it was marketed as a houseplant, which you can then plant out in the garden. Yeah, And it's been really lovely. And it does honestly flower for four months. I mean, we, we've had them here, I reckon, since the beginning of December, and they're showing no sign of, of aging or tiring here. So they're really good value, I'd say, as a winter houseplant. And I remember in, in Min's garden in Nottinghamshire, she's got a hellebore that has got a very, very tough, waxy leaf with a lime, freshly squeezed lime flower, which yes. occasionally on a warm day you'll see the bumblebees on. And I remember you picked it last year and you said it had got a a stem, a vase life of about two weeks. Yeah, um, if not what, more. What's that one called? So that one is called Helleborus corsicus, or I think it's been renamed now Argutifolius, mm. or it may have been called Argutifolius, is now called corsicus. So that comes from Corsica. Uh-huh. And again, dappled shade, but also unusually, and I think probably because it comes from Corsica, it will actually grow in the sun. Yeah. So it's one of the few that you can put out in the middle of a border, and it really holds its own now. I mean, I actually picked some yesterday, yesterday so i think it is worth us just touching on the whole conditioning thing because people do tend to find when they pick hellebores they pick them and they come down the next morning and they're completely flopped double Mm. so uh, why don't you tell us what you would do arthur to make a hellebore last in water 
Well, we must have been doing away days at this time last year because I remember being at Perch Hill and picking a good four buckets worth of hellebores. And um, I think it was Josie who, who said to do this trick. We we seared them, which is where you boil the kettle, have a mug ready and put the stem ends, you know, about three inches of the stem ends in the mug, in the boiling water, and then plunge them straight into cold after 30 seconds. And that exfoliates their little tubes that suck up the water. But then on Josie's advice, we put all these hellebores in an ice cold filled sink and left mm. them in the sink overnight. Do you remember? I do. And that absolutely transformed their vase life. We had to be on the road for, I think, about a week because we were doing back-to-back away days. So these poor hellebores had to be rearranged about seven times. Yeah. But I think, you know, a good more than half of them ended up coming back to you at Perch Hill, didn't they, looking like they'd been freshly picked. Yeah, no, if you do that, I mean, so I always think there are sort of four things that one needs to remember to do just to sort of summarise it. Uh, One is pick them ideally where one of the flowers on the stem has already got a seed pod. So the yellow anthers have dropped. And it doesn't have to be all of them, but it has to be one on the stem. And I guess that's just a marker of how long it's been in flower, you know, a marker Mm. of the age of that stem. The second is to sear the stem ends. I would say more like an inch rather than three inches, but, you know, a bit more is probably fine. Third, uh, put them into a a sink of of cold water. And fourth, I think they are quite temperature sensitive. So try and keep them away from a radiator or whatever. And then, honestly, they can last a good two weeks, 10 days to two weeks. And they're just such a lovely uh, sort of a a kind of hint at spring round the corner. That's what I always love about them. Yeah, they really are that, that flower that helps you get through the next month and a half, aren't they, before everything gets going. So I reckon that covers hellebores for picking pretty well but you grow hellebores in pots don't you Arthur? Yeah I do Um, they're one of the few plants that I've got at home that are kind of like in permanent pots and they're sort of my mum's thing because there's the kind of flower that I often buy her at this time of year as like a late Christmas present so over the years we've probably got about half a dozen and they always end up down our cellar steps where it's very shady as you mentioned they like shade and they kind of stay there and get forgotten about somehow cling on over the summer because we often forget to water them down there but this time of year they come back up but I know around the back of the oast house you've got a very generous bed of hellebores haven't you which have been there well for as long as I've known you all different colours and they've they've self-seeded a little bit yeah and that's the place that I go to to cut them when I'm there because I don't want to cut them right by your door yeah I mean uh, that's what I think so good about hellebores is that if there's a spot in your garden that you just sort of is really boring and it's quite shady and there's nothing much there, you know, any time of year, that is exactly where hellebores should go. And so you put in loads of organic matter. They like lots of farmyard manure before you plant them. And then you just kind of let them naturalize. And, and round the back of the oast, that's exactly, no one ever goes there really. Mm. It's on the, you know, there's grass almost up to the base of the building. But I, th- I remember about 10 years ago, someone gave me a a box of maybe 12 seedlings that they'd dug up from their garden of hellebores and I just chucked them in there and they've gradually just self-seeded. They've crossbred. There's lots of different ones. There's none of those really expensive sort of doubles or really dark, luscious crimsons. They're just the Helleborus orientalis hybrids. They're sometimes called garden hybrid hellebores, but they're nothing poncy at all, but they're just so lovely. And we start picking them in February, March, and we often are going on picking them till June because by then they're seed pods, but uh, they look wonderful, you know, with early hardy annuals and even weirdly with sweet peas, seed pods of hellebores look great. 
there's one bit of housekeeping that I have to do around there that I tend to do sort of early in the new year, which is to remove all the foliage of the hellebores before the flowers start to come. But that is the Orientalis hybrids. It's those varieties that you need to do that particularly with because they get this thing in spring, uh, which is a mold, a sort of black rot, and it will actually rot off the foliage and it can cross transfer onto the flowers because it's like a fungus. So it just, it can spread quite easily. It's windblown. And so you honestly, it's very, very weird. It feels a bit um, savage, but you just defoliate the plant entirely. And then the flowers come up through clean soil without this cross-contamination from the leaves. Well, you've made me want to grow more hellebores than ever, Sarah. And um, what I like about them is unusually for us, they're one of the few flowers that we sometimes cut very short. And I remember one evening there was a big bowl on your kitchen table that we filled with water. It looked like a huge bird bath. And we floated all those lovely hellebores from the back of the oast on it with tea lights. So that's something that I think if anyone is feeling particularly glum because of these evenings can be really awful and dark that's a wonderful way of, of properly starting the the flower glamazon year great arthur well i really look forward to seeing you again next week thanks very much for listening i hope you enjoyed the podcast in next week's episode arthur and i are going to talk about rosemary and snowdrops You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahoven.com.